Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. I'm Pete Wright. Hello. On today's episode, we have invited Sophie Bartes to talk with us about Persona, a movie she likes. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, we are thrilled to talk with you. Uh, thrilled to talk with you about this particular film, which is a big one. It's a it's a big conversation to be had. Jumping into Ingmar Bergman's persona for such a short movie. Oh, talk about God. somebody who is effective at packing a lot into a ninety minute film. Wow, crazy. Before we jump into that, though, let's talk a little bit about you and get to know you. Uh, you have made three feature films now. Uh, your third one has just been released to streaming, The Pod Generation. And I, you know, I definitely want to talk about that because it's it has so many things in my head. Like, I am so afraid of that future yes. <laughs> as a possible place to be. It starts with, oh, we don't want any bored babies. And it goes from there. That's this. <laughs> This <laughs> is problematic. Coming to us. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who streamed the movie actually recently contacted me saying he was developing this technology and wanted to talk to me about the ethical implications. <laughs> so, ready? Soon. No. Yeah. Don't, don't answer the call. Sophie, yeah. don't answer the call. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, wow. I find it so fascinating, though, because clearly, like looking at that film after what you had done before that, which was uh, Madame Bovary and Cold Souls, uh, kind of back, backward chronological order, it's clear that um, you have this fascination with stories that deal with like character psychology in situations, I mean, very every single one of them is a different time period. Well, I say that Cold Souls kind of could be pretty close to the world of, of the Pod Generation, yeah, but I have a generation. feeling it was kind of like the weird Charlie Kaufman modern world. Uh, this is kind of the way I read it. But they're all different time periods. But clearly, you have this interest in tackling like character psychology and the kind of the choices that they're making in their own lives because of how they're feeling inside and kind of like then, of course, how all of that expands into uh, everything else going on around them. And I guess as a starting place for this conversation, you know, getting into the world of coming up with these stories and and uh, directing these films, uh, you know, what's your like, how did you start? Like, where did you come from as somebody who is like, you know, before you started film school, what was it that kind of drew you into telling stories like this? Uh, well, I think if I try to think of the common uh, theme between the three films, it's probably our relationship to consumerism and uh, the commodification of everything. So in Cold Souls, it's about the commodification of the soul that can be extracted and, and sold and replaced. And in Madame Bovary, it's also the first time a writer was talking about credit and consumerism in the 19th century. And the generation is about what tech is going to do to us as human beings and replace us little by little for in order to commodify uh, the brain and the mind. So I guess it's a subject that it's been in my mind since I moved to New York. I came here. I still have my very strong French accent. <laughs> it's <laughs> embarrassing 22 years later. But I came to study at Columbia University and I studied film and journalism. So I was coming more from a documentary and journalism uh, background. Um, but then I gave myself five years after film school thinking if I can make a feature within five years, I'll stick with it. And if not, I'll go back to do journalism. And I was lucky that my first film was uh, produced by Paul Giamatti and he was uh, he acted in it and, he, and then he went to Sundance. And it was a great beginner's luck <laughs> uh, with this 
um, but yeah, I guess that's maybe the theme that interests me. Um, yeah, to explore in the map. That's how I feel in in this society somehow. <laughs> that that is one of the the things about Cold Souls that I you know just watching Paul Giamatti. I can't help but think that Paul Giamatti has got to be your spirit animal. Like if there is ever uh, a hand to glove fit of a character to a premise, it's got to be him in that role. It's incredible. Yeah, I wrote it for him. And so but it's a very strange story. I wrote the script for him as himself. And then the script got uh, an award at the Nantucket Film Festival. And Paul Giamatti was there to give an award to Alexander Payne for Sideways. And I told him I wrote this for you. And, and he thought I was completely crazy. <laughs> and then uh, and then it was like, it's based on a dream I had. And in my dream, it was actually Woody Allen who had a soul that was the shape of a little chickpea and he was like oh i also write my dreams and we start talking about our dreams and then the monday he was like i want to read it and uh him and his wife had a production company and so i gave them the script and 24 hours later they said we want to produce it and paul wants to be in it so i guess this was really beginner's luck <laughs> it never wow. happened again. <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing Pete's right. He is so perfect in the role. And not only is he perfect in the role, but then you go and you include Uncle Vanya in there. And it's like, he kind of is perfect in that, too. Like, he just, like, he fits all of that so well. And uh, it, the whole chickpea thing, like, I, I, I think one of my favorite moments it's such a small moment in the film but it was when he goes to have dinner i think he's in russia at this point and he gets the plate brought out to him and it's a salad and he just looks down and there's like chickpeas in it. it's just like that <laughs> that whole connection it's just like yeah talk about something that can sour you on a food like finding out your soul looks just like that can we uh, can we talk a little bit about your aesthetic too? Because especially those two movies, like they have such a, it, it's kind of that retro future uh, kind of feel. Everything's sort of there, there's just a lot of bulbousness and round in the the design aesthetic. And I'm curious where that comes from. Like, is that all part of your dreamscape? Uh, or, or because there's a lot of it that you know feels like you know a, a 70s Woody Allen joint, right? That that just feels like uh, you know everything you want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask um where does that come from for you wow exactly spot on <laughs> this was a big influence uh all the early Woody Allen you know sleeper and everything you wanted to know and I think I wanted to develop uh, science fiction that is more feminine from the look from the design because we're used to science fiction that's very square and very uh, you know, masculine design science fiction where, uh, and like some movies that are very beautiful, like, uh, Ex Machina, but they're very, the materials are very dark or they can be, you know, you just feel it's a male sensibility. Maybe an exception is her, the Spike Jones movie that had a lot of red and a lot of, uh, very strong colors. Uh, but I think it was this idea to design science fiction that would be rounder or more fetishistic and, and be just a, aesthetic pleasure you know give you it's a sort of seduction i think once you see the world of the generation you really want to have that technology and that's why i think it's the genius of uh, tech companies today like this was one of the things that steve jobs was so good at is to when he introduced the roundness in the screen of uh, the macbook he understood that whatever is in nature like the round uh, anything that's organic attracts the human brain and that's where I think that's why 
he was so successful is we're made, our brain is programmed to love shapes from nature. So if you do, you know, like in the first generation, everything is round, everything is biophilic. There's a kind of confusion between what is biological, what is digital. Uh, you get people to get hooked on it and seduced by it and they want to have it. <laughs> so I think that's the, the genius and also the terrifying aspect of the marketing of all those companies today. You cannot not have those products. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, especially in pod generation, like, I mean, the eggs themselves are, you know, it already has that kind of that egg shape to it that works so well for a place to, we'll just say, host your baby as it's developing. Uh, but then also there are the little, I, I can't remember what they call them in the film, but the little eyeball things. And it's just like, that's what the technology is. It's all redesigning our own world but in a technological way, like the therapist, when they go to the therapist, it's a giant, beautiful circular wall of like this flower decor surrounding this giant eyeball. And that's what they talk to as their, as their therapist. And I, I think that speaks so much to your point about this draw to making it as human as possible, but doing everything possible to take out the human side of it to make it quote, easier uh, to kind of run and manage and, and to make our lives easier and everything. It's, it's a fascinating exploration of that interesting balance of technology. I, yeah, I, I want to jump on that too, Andy, because I mean, that's, that was exactly the experience, like, especially when you're just introduced to the eggs, to the pods, the way, I mean, as an audience member, I kind of want to touch them. Like I want to rub my hands on them. Right. And I want to, and, and you can see it like when they are like figuring out how to wear them and put, she pulls her shirt down over her sweater down over it. Like the way, the way the shapes move with curves and other materials and straps, it's just, it, you talk about fetishizing it. Like there is uh, and, and since you mentioned Steve Jobs, that when he introduced one of the, the operating system elements, he said, you're going to love these buttons. You're going to want to lick them. I thought of that as I was watching this film, that there is there is so much just like I, I want to touch these curves. I want to be a part of this world. And that makes me feel like you're too powerful for your own good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that was exactly the conversation we're having with Clement Price Thomas, the production designer, we wanted to make it almost making us feel like children, you know, that you wanted to touch the things, you wanted to lick them, you wanted to have them. You, <laughs> and that's that's what they're doing. And they're very good at doing this, all those companies. Um, and that's why we're hooked to technology the way it's presented to us now. And the eye, for instance, it didn't have to be moist or to blink. We added those features. We're having a lot of fun with the VFX company thinking it has to be very confusing for the person sitting there because it could be just a black camera. It could be, it didn't have to even be materialized. It could be like in her it's just a voice, you know, it's like Scarlett Johansson voice and that's all you need. <laughs> but we decided to make it like something tangible and um, because it's even more terrifying. It pulls you in it, and, and you're not sure what you're looking at, but you can't stop looking at it. And I think that's a very Orwellian uh, science fiction approach to say, you know, that's what I think is terrifying about what's happening with artificial intelligence today. They've started ChatGPT actually the same week that the movie was uh, premiering at Sundance. And they haven't uh, asked people their 
point of view. Like no one has been consulted democratically about is this good for humanity or not? <laughs> We've just been testing it for them. A hundred million people connected in two months and tested ChatGPT and gave their information. And it's a little bit like if you put a cancer trial drug on the market and with no warning, you know, and people are just guinea pigs of those companies. <laughs> and we don't know the consequences until it's going to be too late. And already you have Elon Musk and all those people apologizing and say, oh, you should regulate us because this is a very powerful and dangerous technology. But it's already almost too late. It's already there, you know. <laughs> and so I think there is a total moral bankruptcy that's happening in the Silicon Valley where we have had no democratic debate. Those people have not been elected to make those choices for humanity. And that's why we had the writer's strike, you know, that uh, luckily it's just going to end right now. But this was the first human demonstration of some sort of resistance to what's happening with artificial intelligence. And I think the film, when I started writing it, it was like four or five years ago. I had no idea this crisis. <laughs> but that's the beauty of science fiction. You start writing and reality catches up. And now most a documentary. I mean, I'm convinced all these technologies in five, ten years, you would have pods, you would have giant eyes you're talking to that are telling you what to do with your life. It's coming. It's almost already there. Right. Another interesting aspect that you're kind of looking at with these stories is is how technology or how I guess you could almost say the changing times just you know tying this into also Madame Bovary uh, which as you said is the uh, 18th century it's also like how these changes in how whether it's technology or societal changes like creating credit and things like that like how it shifts the way that um, people's expectations are within society and expectations of you in Madame Bovary. Certainly it becomes this expectation to kind of like, at least the way she interprets it, like to create this better life and more and more and more and bigger and better stuff. But aren't you happier when you have that silk lining in your coat and all of those sorts of things that, you know, it's, it's that line that, uh, that she's crossing because it just seems like, well, this is where society, is moving and I want to be there and look at what happens in in the pod generation at work where they're actually like well you shouldn't bring your pod to work you know it it gives us concerns that you brought it here today like it's just like the the way that those expectations and just like the working world and making things easier for the working mom but it's really you're still like you still have to cut all that stuff off it ends up creating I, I don't know I, I find that the way that you're exploring these different stories to study those characters, the psychology of the characters um, within societal expectations, I think is, is a fascinating element that you continue to include in all of your stories. Yeah. Thank you. I think, you know, Flaubert said it that, uh, he, the, he, it was, he was trying to explore the French society in the 19th century and the birth of capitalism before capitalism existed, but he was pretty visionary. And, you know, when she talks to this, this man who wants to sell her all these dresses, she has no idea what credit is. The concept of credit didn't exist. It was the birth of credit. And once people start to live beyond their means and be in debt, that's when the vicious circle of consumption starts. And that's why I was so fascinated by that story that it was so modern that he could envision what capitalism was going to do to us. And I'm not anti-capitalistic or Bolshevik or whatever, but <laughs> there is an enlightened capitalism where, you know, and I think right now capitalism has taken a turn that is 
very much based on inequality. Like there is 1% of people having 99% of the resources. Uh, it doesn't seem very normal, you know? <laughs> and so, and the growth is, is not capped. So it's growth for the sake of growing. And that's what I was trying to explore in the pod generation that if you let those companies without any regulation, they're going to do whatever they want. And it's a little bit the same allegory in Oppenheimer where, you know, Hitler commits suicide and they look at each other and they say, should we continue building this bomb? And they're like, well, we've come so far, we should continue. <laughs> and it's this idea that you, the hubris, you do not stop because regulation, there's no regulation and no one is telling you to stop. So you continue. That's a very human thing, you know, and that's, I think, the beauty and the strength of America as a country. It's a country of innovation and constant creation and love of, you know, going forward. But it's also very scary because it does feel a bit like Mad, Mad Max Fury Road where you're going straight to a wall at one point. And and it, it happened with social media, like they didn't regulate anything. And then fast forward a few years later, they're like, oh, this is messing up with the election. Uh, we have a mental health crisis in teenagers. And then you have Mark Zuckerberg at Congress saying, oh, we had no idea. And it all feels the same story is repeating itself now with artificial intelligence, that we're not regulating. Europe is already regulating pretty hardly. And in America, we're waiting for the crisis to happen. And then there's going to be a panic and then it's going to get regulated. But it is, it's interesting to see humanity repeating the same mistakes every time <laughs> and uh, not learning from history. <laughs> well, the rule, the rule, I think, of modern capitalism is that the stop signs always go up after the accident. I think oh, yeah. that's the, right. <laughs> Haven't we learned that? I think that's settled science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, certainly the American way. Yeah, right, right. We've nailed it. <laughs> no right. notes, America. <laughs> Pros at that. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, you know, I think this is a great point to uh, switch our conversation over and talk a little bit about uh, this, this uh, intense film that you brought to us, uh, Ingmar Bergman's Persona. In these words... The leading film critics of Europe have honored Ingmar Bergman's new film, Persona. Persona is a knowledge, a terrible knowledge of our loneliness, our estrangement, our inability to reach one another. It is a confession of our fears, of man, of failure, of death. Persona is the drama of a despair. A silence. A terror far too great to be named. Of life laid bare to the bone. It is a drama of the skin sensitivity. and words and ruthless courage. Persona is an illusion shattered. A victory over silence. A new film from Ingmar Bergman 
persona. First question, um, let's just start with how you came to this film and kind of your, uh, if you can remember, like your initial impressions and, uh, you know, how it ended up kind of shaping your thinking with it. I can't remember. I've seen it so many times that I can't remember the first, first time I saw it, but I guess it was around film school when I started doing my Bergman <laughs> uh, studies. <laughs> and I remember just like when you see this movie the first time, uh, it's a revolution. It's There is a before persona and there's an after persona as a filmmaker, as a normal audience, as a, as a human being, um, because he was so audacious and so bold and and nothing like this movie exists since and has been made the same way. And I think it's been ranked by a lot of critics, Paul, as one of the 10 masterpieces in the history of cinema. And I was surprised. I was doing a little bit of research before the podcast and I, I didn't even know all this. I knew it had made a very strong impression on me. I knew that it had uh, influenced David Lynch from Mulholland Drive, which is another of my favorite films. Um, and you can feel the presence of persona in so many films from great filmmakers. Either it's subconscious or it's conscious or it's a reference. But it is a film that you could never imitate. You could never do a remake of it. It would make no sense. It's a film that has permeated, I think, the mind and the soul of many filmmakers. And uh, and every time I watch it, I rewatch it for this talk yesterday. It, you can always see it differently. There is no one possible explanation for the film it's a there's a quote that's really um fun that i just want to read from a critic i don't remember his name but he says persona is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma which swallows you completely (laughs) (laughs) it's like this puzzle you know and uh once you get into this thing, you're under the spell of Bergman, and he knows it. And we can talk in detail where, how he's doing that technically, but he knows he's a magician, and he knows, and he's showing you the tricks also. And he keeps telling you, "I know I'm playing tricks on you, and I'm just, you know, making a film, and you should be aware this is a film." I mean, right out of the gate, you know, we're getting the little projector, the the, the little spark in there, kind of lighting up and everything, and getting it going, and then the the film spinning up and everything all the way to the very end when it, we see it kind of uh, dissipating this film. I remember I first watched this and I must have been in a state where I just wasn't ready for it because I just remember walking out of it going, I don't think I got that. And I don't think I liked it. And I I haven't returned to it until this podcast. And honestly, I was a little (laughs) nervous. I'm like, this, this could be an interesting one. We'll see where this goes. And I put it on again and I feel like my mind was blown and I'm like, what was I watching that first time? Like, I know I watched this film, but I feel like it just experienced it for the first time. Like, right out of the gate, I'm like, this is some of the most fresh, innovative filmmaking. Just the editing style, the cutting style, the camera movements and everything. And then the story was just so... I mean, it fits exactly what you just said. It was so enigmatic. And I'm and I'm still trying to piece together all of the elements of it as far as, like, the characters and, and what all of it means and the way that Bergman was integrating a lot of the the fourth wall breaking and kind of telling you over and over yeah this is a movie though 
and so I just I found it to be such a fascinating experience, and I'm already like I can't wait to go watch it again just so I can start looking at all the images again and like really kind of putting all these pieces together. And it's like one of those puzzles that I feel like you can always be playing with and always putting together. It'll never actually give you the full picture. But it's always giving you something new. And that's what I think was so interesting about it. Yeah, that's why it's so enduring. And it's what we call a masterpiece, because there is no single explanation. And even Bergman, I've listened to a lot of interviews where he speaks about the film and he says, I have my own theory about the film, but I would never, ever give it to you because this would be uh, insulting to the sensibility of the of the audience. I want everyone to feel what they want to feel. And what he was saying, that's, I think it's very beautiful. It's uh, He didn't want people to intellectualize the film and have an analysis that comes from the intellect. He wanted people to experience the film from their emotion. And the film does work at a very visceral emotional level where you're very shaken by it and you don't know why and he's pushing those buttons in your soul in your subconscious because he opened his soul to the audience so it's a soul to soul conversation and and that's what he said it was very beautiful he gave a, a speech for an award he got just after he made persona and he said uh for him language was always something that he didn't master he was never good with words he was not a painter he was not a musician and the only language he really had was images and emotions that's why he's a great filmmaker and he said if you come with this idea of a character that doesn't speak that only has images to express our emotions, the close-up of Lee Woolman, um, that's when you're doing pure cinema because there is just the medium. There's just the emotion of human being being um, shared with another human being. And that's why I think he was trying to do, and that's why it's a masterpiece because there's no intermediary. There is no, you know, like theories or intellectualization or a like a proper plot. There's not even like a plot in the film. There is, it's more like variations and themes around dissociation, around the split of a personality. And so I think it's a deeply, deeply personal movie for Bergman because when he had the idea of it, he was in a hospital for, he had a total nervous breakdown and a, a physical uh, breakdown too. He was the director of uh, the theater in uh, Stockholm and it didn't work for him and he was trying to be a filmmaker at the same time and he got an infection and he was in a hospital for two, three weeks. And I think he went into this sort of crisis thinking, I need to be truthful to what I want to do and I want, I need to search for the truth. And what's the best way to search for the truth than stop speaking? <laughs> and so I think he is in a way if you look at what happened in his life at that time and how the movie came to be born, uh, he says it came from a dream. It also came from a picture he saw of Lee Woolman and Bibi Anderson together. And it came from the feeling of being in that hospital. And all this together gave birth to that very strange film. <laughs> and, and I think it's, you know, the silence is probably part of him. And the movie he had made before was called The Silence, which I don't know if you've seen it, but it's also a masterpiece. It's about two women, two sisters that have a very strange relationship and a neglected son. And also they don't speak to each other. So there's already those elements were there. But Persona is taking it to a level of modernism and experimentation that he had never touched before. So he said that in a way Persona saved his life because he was in a turmoil artist and it was his artistic salvation and for him there was a before and an after of persona just like for us yeah 
yeah, because that's where he met Liv Ullman, who became his muse. Sure. And then they made like 10 or 11 movies together and they, they had a child together. Then they, they separated, but they continued collaborating. And she was probably the most important collaborator in his life. And they met through that movie. It was the first time they worked together and he completely fell in love with her doing the making of that movie. So there's so many things around this movie. <laughs> Yeah, right. It, well, it's funny you're talking about that. And I, I don't know why this film came to my head, but it, it ended up like the way that you were describing that made me feel like um, when I ended up watching uh, Stan Brackage's Window Water Baby movie, which is obviously a totally different type of movie, but still like there's something so personal. And, and again, it's he's not it's just it's an avant garde film where it's just images about him and his wife having a baby and stuff. But there is something about opening yourself up and and including like raw personal images and images that kind of come from your soul to put into this story that really I think reflects quite strongly with with exactly what Bergman was doing and, and I think you look at kind of what avant-garde filmmakers were doing and you can really see in some of his style in this particular film that he's really playing with a lot of those tools and techniques yeah it was the golden age of European cinema I feel the 60s you know like Godard just met uh, uh, Abu Souf, I think, and uh, uh, Buñuel was also experimenting a lot. Although Bergman always says he didn't like Godard's work at all, but I do feel there is some sort of similar technical elements in the modernity, in breaking the fourth wall, addressing the camera, the composition of the frames, the beauty, the aesthetic. There, there are some similarities, maybe from the time, uh, you know, what was happening in Europe. Aesthetically, also Fellini, Antonioni, they're all kind of linked in this kind of, I would say, Jungian movement where the artist had to reconnect his animus and his anima, the feminine and the masculine part. And that's why those filmmakers were male. That's why it's so interesting for me as a female director talking about a director like this who is a male director unable to write the most exquisite female characters. And I think it should reconcile us with the idea that we're just filmmakers. It doesn't matter if we're a female or a ma male filmmaker, because we have the example of the history of cinema of those male directors writing the most precise, incredible studies of the female psyche. And maybe it was part of him that, you know, there is this feminine elements in him that he was exploring through those female characters, or he, he was hiding before b behind female characters to talk more about himself and using it as like a sort of mask. But whatever he did, he, he created those extraordinary muses. <laughs> and uh, I think we, we should not forget because the debate today, I feel, is becoming a little bit silly about you know, if you're a male director, you cannot write a female character. If you're not, uh, it's just becoming very um, annoying, the conversation sometimes. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that really sticks out to me, and I'm curious as a filmmaker who's, uh, again, I'm leaning heavily on production design and, and uh, aesthetic. What is it that inspires you about this movie? Because this movie is uh, an exercise in narrative and production austerity measures, right? Like the thing that jumps out to me after an hour and 23 minutes with this movie is how the hell did he do that to me with so little on screen, right? Clear testament to B.B. Anderson and Liv Ullman. But I, I, I have to imagine that puts you as a filmmaker in a unique place, 
Yeah, the aesthetic experience of this film is, I think, unparalleled. Like, very few filmmakers are able to do this with so little. And what's interesting is, like, the happy accident in filmmaking, because I read that they started to shoot this in a studio in Stockholm for 14 days, and it was a disaster. Nothing worked. They all this footage was thrown and, and useless uh, because Liv Ullman was very nervous. It was her first time working with Bergman, who was already a god in, in Sweden. Uh, Bibi Anderson had a lot of dialogue and yeah. <laughs> the mood in the studio was very heavy. And Bergman was feeling he had no clue what he was doing. Uh, and he got very nervous. And then he was like, that's it. We're going to Faro. And this was his island. And I think... Again, it's incredible because it's a meta movie because this is what happened in his life too. When he was in crisis, he moved to that island and lived in that island and made many movies in that island. But to make this movie happen and to capture the aesthetic and the beauty of this kind of chamber uh, sonata uh, in the middle of this nature that is so raw and beautiful, they had to go to this island. And once they reached the island, the movie was coming together. They could feel they were doing good work, uh, the framing, like the light, the, the, they just felt it was, something was working. And you see like the way the, he approaches, like with, he had this conversation with his cinematographer, Sven Nixvi. They decided that medium shots were boring. They're not going to have any medium shots. So they decided it was going to be extreme close-up, close-up, and very wide, very long uh, takes. And that works psychologically for the film because you have to study the face of those actresses. And maybe it's a reference to Dreyer, you know, who did uh, Joan of Arc in 28, who was also a Swedish filmmaker and was the master of close-up. But then when you see the juxtaposition of those extreme close-up that are on those faces that are so expressive and then those two women lost in this nature that is so powerful you, it, it says something it says maybe the drama of human beings is nothing compared to the force of nature like yeah so suddenly there's another meaning that's created through the location and and that house for him was very inspiring i think it's the house where he lived or he rented for a while before building his own house on the island but definitely there is you know the there's an aesthetic and a beauty that is completely controlled because Sven Nisvi is someone, I think a cinematographer who knew exactly the shots he wanted and it was very designed and very intentional. And at the same time, it's completely free because they built it a lot in the editing room and there is no plot per se. There is just those, when you see in the notes of Bergman, um, he had a notebook when he was trying to start the script for for this film and it's all uh, impression and feelings and sensations there's no scene writing there's no uh, of course he wrote the dialogue at one point but it's all he wanted to keep it very raw i think in terms of the material that he had in his hands but then the execution with the cinematographer i think it's extremely planned and so it's the two things coming together and you have this incredible <laughs> material. And I think in the edit room, they invented a lot of things in the edit room. There's a very famous shot, which is the two faces of the actresses that are blend together. So one profile is Bibi Anderson and the other profile is Liv Woolman. And they took the bad profile because everyone has a profile that's not as... <laughs> Yeah, the wrong side, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they took the two wrong side and created that face. And apparently when the actresses came to see it in the edit room, they didn't recognize themselves, they recognized the other actress. Oh, That's so how wow. it works. We do not recognize our dark side, our bad side. We, yeah. 
we, we can erase it from our brain. So they're experimenting with all those tools with very little. They didn't have the effects. They only had their creativity, their camera, two characters, a house. It's very it's spectacular, I think, as a cinema. <laughs> Yeah. And it was interesting, just a, a, a side note to all of that, but just in the scope of the camera work, like what was the style that they liked, like the long shots, the close-ups. Obviously, this wasn't an influence because it, you know, came out the same year, but, but seeing something like what Sergio Leone would do with like a huge vista and then a character pops up like right close in front of the camera, <laughs> which we had in this film as we see, I think it's with B.B. Anderson. Like this is when they're in their black, they're in their black outfits and she's way down on the beach and we're just kind of watching her. And then out of nowhere, suddenly Liv Holman pops up and she's like right in front of us. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that shot again yesterday. And it's so funny. You're talking about Westerns because Bergman was saying, uh, I have much more fun watching a Western than my own Bergman movies. <laughs> <laughs> But that he was unable to make a Western because he didn't have the craft to make a Western. And he, all his movies had to be emotions that he, he was feeling, but that he really was taken and admirative of Westerns. So maybe here you go. There is a reference. Yeah. To Sergio Leone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. Now it's, I mean, watching the, uh, the way that the story gets, um, crafted and built, uh, it, I mean, it's interesting hearing you kind of talk about kind of like the 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 way that they that they approached putting this together because some of it feels so meticulously thought out and planned ahead of time like like thinking about their costumes and okay we're going to have them all in black outfits in this section of the film and now we're going to be in white outfits and now we're going to be in the gray outfits and kind of like how that changes along with particular emotional states as they're kind of moving through the story and, and we're kind of weaving and flowing. And sometimes it's kind of very, like it, everything has kind of this misty quality and dreamlike states. And, and I can't help but feel like, like there has to be this level of like meticulously putting all of that together and visualizing how that's constructed so that we can lay it out in the right way. But at the same time, to your point, it's like, I think there's a, this element that, that ends up feeling so, what would be the way to describe it? Like um, will, willing to be flexible and willing to just kind of shift things as needed based on, you know, the right feeling that he might have with something. Yeah, I think we could call it Scandinavian effortlessness. <laughs> <laughs> Very, you know, it's extremely thought of and it's extremely loose. It gives you the impression of freedom and dream and but, but that's the mastery because it's so crafted it's a bit like Mulholland Drive, you know, Mulholland Drive, you don't know. And that that's the strength of persona. You do not know from visual clue what is a dream and what is reality. And it's so merged that there is a lot of dream and hallucination sequences when B.B. Anderson starts losing it. And you see uh, Liv Woolman is coming at night and in her room and then she dis and then she walks away and she turns at the same time that, that Liv Woolman. They both turn at the same time to look at each other. This is... I feel is a dream or an hallucination or a vision, but there's no real uh, clue or there's no indication. Like, so maybe the whole movie is a dream. Uh, maybe, you know, he's telling us it's a dream within a dream. It's a Pirandello theater play. 
I also read it's he was very inspired by August Strindberg and um, one of the play he loved was uh, Dream Play and one play that's called The Stronger which is a one act play in which one character refuses to talk and another character talks constantly <laughs> and then the one that is the weaker is the one who's talks all the time and at the end of the play the the character who is winning and has the most power is the one who has silenced during the entire uh, play so for sure he was inspired and he said himself he was very inspired by this play but then it's the Bergman you know it's this it's completely original because it's whatever influence he had he made it his by the craft and by the vision and um, just like the frames, sometimes you have, uh, you know, there's this moment where Liv Woolman is looking on, at the camera on the right of the screen. And then on the back, you have this sort of hallucination of Alma, the nurse with her, with the husband of Elizabeth. And, uh, they're having this affair and she's there witnessing it, but witness, witnessing it from her back. She's not looking at it, but she can hear it. And this was completely incredible to do this, um, you know, because it could completely not work, but it does work in a very strange way. And you're completely hypnotized because you do feel as a viewer that you're a voyeuristic person and you shouldn't be there uh, watching this, but you can't stop watching it. Uh, so maybe it's also, you know, the the premise of uh, all the cinema of Michael Haneke that is also about voyeurism. And I think this opened the door to so many possibilities in cinema just by the pure bold uh, aspect of making those frames and saying, I'm going to put three characters in a frame and they're doing different things and they shouldn't even be in the same frame, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> and as Bergman, I mean, he's, you know, the master of audacity, I would say. <laughs> Can I ask a question that just really puts me in the corner of the dummy? <clears throat> I'll be the dummy. <laughs> what, as somebody who loves the film, what's the deal with the entrails in the beginning? Like, what is it that, because Bergman has made this really beautiful portrait of these people, but opens the film, and I think this is what gives Bergman that sort of... Um, the perception that Bergman's films are impenetrable is because some of these avant-garde tropes literally put a, a frame block on the narrative that is to come. And the opening of this movie starts with poking at the eyeball of the cow or whatever the animal it is, and then the spilling of the entrails. And I'm, I'm wondering that they're so fast. Those shots are incredibly, you know, brief and shocking and I am curious your take on the the purpose or purposelessness of of including shots like that before a story that arguably stands on its own. Is that is that an argument that could be made? Yeah, I think it's completely deliberate. You know, he he wanted to shake you. He wanted to jolt you awake and be like, you're in a dream, but you're fully awake and you're going to take this dream full on and it's going to be disturbing. And the images you see are doing something to your emotions. They're not random. I mean, he said once in an interview, oh, they're just boring random images. I couldn't come with anything more creative. <laughs> uh, but they are visceral images oh, that disturb you. They're disturbing. That's what he wants to do. He wants to put you in a very uncomfortable position as a viewer. And he's telling you, I'm a magician. I'm doing tricks on you. I'm going to play tricks on you. But, you know, hang on. And, like, you're going to 
look at my soul. It's, I think he's playing with the subconscious when he puts those juxtaposition of images that are pretty violent. They're beautiful, but extremely violent and disturbing. He's, he probably knows because he's done 25 films before that doing this to a viewer is going to disturb you and it's going to put you on the edge of your seat and it's going to grab your attention and you're probably going to be in a different mood than watching two beautiful women in a... It's, it would be a very interesting experiment to remove those <laughs> this montage and start the movie in the hospital and what it does to you. But I think he was trying to position himself as a very modernist, avant-gardist filmmaker with this film saying, we're not going to watch a normal story with a beginning, a middle and an end in the classical way. I've done many of those. We're going to... This is going to be a completely different experience. And you go, come with me and, you know, and and let's see what happens. He didn't even know, I think, at the beginning what, what would happen to people watching this movie. But I think he he was just, um, you know, opening the door from, from a modernist approach to cinema where things don't have to always be linked to the narration. It doesn't have to be part of the plot. You could, you can, and then so many other filmmakers did that after. Um, you can just try to talk directly to the senses and to the soul and to the emotions. And it's not part of the story and it doesn't really matter. And so I think he, you know, he was conscious always in his movies to connect to the maximum amount of people. But for this film, he said he was making this film for himself as a salvation. Uh, and then he was surprised that so many people connected to the film. Your perspective on it, I think, makes total sense to me, especially when you pair it with the experience of, of like his notebooks and talking about how he writes in in sensation and feeling. Because to to me, I can imagine him sitting in the booth looking at coverage and thinking there is no other emotion shaped tool for me that I can use than this of violence, like this shot of violence. This is the only thing that triggers me to get to the place I need to be to watch these women have their experience together. I mean, it makes sense, but I, but, but I think that's what gives this the the film the reputation of of being for the cineasts, you know, for the for the the people who like to experience and think so deeply about film and, and makes it less popular and impenetrable for, for a lot of people. I think that's always good. I mean, I think there's definitely that read of uh, that, that probably came from this time of the art house, uh, you know, European art house cinema that always was, you know, people were ready to spoof in whatever ways possible. Yeah. You know, we've seen it countless times of, uh, I mean, even I think the Simpsons did something where it's just like the, the black and white, once you go black and white and contrasty and, and, you know, the, the shots, people, characters aren't looking at each other. Then suddenly it's this art house thing. I, I definitely think that there is something there, but at the same time, like with, with an artist, uh, well, I think this speaks to cinema as an art form in, sometimes making these choices based on emotion and what you what you how you feel about it as opposed to uh logic and plot and story and and uh, yeah i don't know if i really understood what that was there for either other than i it, it made me really i was uncomfortable as that was starting which put me into a mindset once the film started and i don't know if i would have gotten into that mindset to start the film without and obviously then it shapes right. my would you have been on the edge of your seat yeah right, right? like i was on the edge of my emotional seat after that right. and it does not go back to anything like that in the rest of the movie 
the the most intense sequence in in the movie for me beyond that opening montage is waiting to see what Bibi's going to do with the glass that breaks on the patio, because that is such an experience of raw, like, consideration, like, raw human uncertainty that she does not know how she's going to handle all the intensity that she's feeling toward this other woman, and watching that play out on her face and in the way she kneels and in the way she picks up the glass and in the way we have to wait with great anticipation for the yelp of pain later. Like, all of that plays out so significantly to me in just another way of heightened emotions, but it never gets back to the, the sort of vileness of the first, you know, 50 seconds of the movie. Yeah, and I think, th- and that's why I picked this film to talk about today in 2023, uh, because a lot of filmmakers, including uh, Yorgos Lantimos uh, at Venice, just said there is no more uh, real sex in movies. There is no more, everything is a trigger warning today. So imagine for filmmakers, imagine the filmmakers of the 60s and 70s that were bold and audacious and working with the stuff of being a human being, which is we do have violent thoughts inside of us. And the more you repress things, the more they're going to persist and grow in size if you don't uh, look at them. <laughs> and the cinema, like now there's trigger warnings for everything. Uh, and I was reading an article in The Atlantic that was so interesting about American teenagers being unable to confront the discomfort of art because they're so used now to to warnings about everything that if you show them a piece of art like Persona, it would be really interesting. They're highly disturbed and they can't take it uh, because they've been they evolve in this little cocoon of everything is a warning, everything as as you know you have to stay in the comfort zone of what you know and doesn't make you feel. But that's not the art function. And Bergman was a true artist in the sense that he was looking at the complication of the human soul and the darkness and the light and the beauty and the love and the tenderness, but also all the dark thing. And it doesn't have to come always with gun violence or with other type of violence we're seeing in movies today. It's a violence that's so out there, but it's actually, you, you're immune to it because you've seen it so much. But then when you see real psychological violence of symbolic violence, you don't know how to deal with it um, because the movies are not doing it anymore. And so that's why I wanted to bring this movie back into, you know, Let's talk about those images and to go back to another film that I think it's very disturbing that the images were not shown and they're shown in this film. We're seeing a man being burned. We're seeing a kid in Auschwitz, Auschwitz being arrested in the ghetto. And talk about a movie like Oppenheimer. They're not even showing the consequences of the bomb on the Japanese people. It's not shown. That image is not shown. And politically, someone in the 60s someone in the 70s would have shown what the bomb did to Japanese people, to their flesh, to the children running. To We don't see that. It's like, is it was it a conversation with the studio about, oh, this needs a massive trigger warning? Uh, like, we can't show those images. But it, And that's what Bergman said. He said, if I don't show these images, I'm not doing my job as a filmmaker. I don't need to intellectualize and talk about it for hours. All I need to do is show an image. And when he shows the image of this man burning himself, there, he was being reproached at that time that he wasn't very vocal about the Vietnam War. And, and he said, I don't need to talk about the Vietnam War. All I need to do is show one image. And then this will be imprinted in your brain and your soul and you would have an emotional reaction to it. And by not showing, filmmakers are guilty of not showing certain things because they 
trying politically to either be correct or not inflame the situation or so that's a debate to be having today in filmmaking you know what do we show what do we not show and I felt I loved Oppenheimer. I thought it's an incredible movie, but I was extremely shocked politically that they're not showing the consequence because children like my daughter is 14 and she's never seen those images. I've been to Hiroshima. I've been to the museum. I've seen those images. So I know as an adult what happened. But a kid of her generation that has not seen those images, they have no idea what it did really to people, you know, and that's the duty of a filmmaker is to to communicate this and that's the strength and that's why i think bergman is so bold he's like i'm i'm gonna show you the real darkness of humanity and i'm also gonna show you how we can redeem ourselves and so he's trying to show the totality of the of the human experience without any censorship i guess yeah we just on our other show the next rail recently talked about uh rosalini's rome open city which uh you know 20 years before this film but made right on the heels of world war ii and i can't help but think that there's uh, this sense of also like just the that italian neorealism that bergman uh, may also have latched onto that sense of i mean that was rosalini filming right after the nazis had just pulled out of italy and portraying the nazis in very awful ways and i mean we, seeing them torturing people and everything i mean it, it's a it's a kind of a, a brutal depiction that felt very real and i mean it's just it's interesting because i think while bergman's images to a certain extent are there's definitely like a hallucinatory dream side to the way that he's putting them into this film it doesn't have that that certainly it's not that the neorealist style of filmmaking but there's something so visceral about them still that i can't help but feel like that's what perhaps Bergman saw in those that Italian neorealist style of capturing something that feels so real and authentic. And I think Bergman has found a way to imbue a lot of those with a lot of the emotional weight, like the way that we're cutting from those images, like you said, the the the, the immolation to the the shot of the kid at the the concentration camp and the entrails, all like all of these different images, they put your your head into a mental space that doesn't necessarily connect with the story, but it still is, is putting you into a space where that becomes part of how you're thinking about all of it. And, and it's influencing your thoughts on the story itself. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating way to, to put a film together. No, I really like the way you just put that. Like it's, it's putting you in a space for the film, not necessarily with the film. And and I think that's that's important, that preparatory material. It's not like like Bunuel and Dolly. Like it's just it 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 really is like I, I come into this a little bit with a what was the purpose of it? And I, I'm realizing that's not the question. Right. The, the 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 I know the purpose of it. The purpose of it was I had a different experience with these women on screen as a result of how he set me up. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. It really is. Where where do you stand? I mean, are you a, a a Bergman completionist? Have you seen all of Bergman's films? There's a lot. <laughs> he made like fifty movies. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm not a fan of the beginning, like all the studio work he did. I've seen some, and I fast forward through some in in uh, film school because they're very classic. I mean, they have nothing to do with his that period. My favorite period is all the sixties. Like I'm I'm obsessed with the silence. Uh, I love Shame. Also, that's an incredible movie about the war. All that period around the 60s, 66, 67, everything he did with Lee Woolman, uh, 
Um, I'm a huge fan. But uh, yeah, the last one, Sarah Band, I wasn't that crazy about it. But I've always watched his films just to see what he's going to be doing next. And they all, I mean, overall, they're all pretty incredible, you know. He's such an interesting filmmaker because I feel like he's a filmmaker. Maybe I just need to always give every one of his films at least two viewings before I make up my mind. For sure. Because like <laughs> we've covered, I think this is the third one of his films that yeah, we've talked we do? about. Cries and Whispers. Cries and Whispers and Autumn Sonata. And Autumn Sonata. Uh, both of which I found so powerful. But like I, my recollection from seeing them before was like, yeah, they were interesting. But now I'm like, God, they're really amazing. And so it's, it's fascinating to like, I want to um, revisit some of the others of his that I've seen because I just, I, I, that's certainly speaking to his filmmaking style. I find so many of the visuals, even if I've forgotten a lot of details of the films, I remember just specific images of the movies that always stand out. And, that certainly is something that I think is very important. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, speaking to your own work, like the work with uh, his cinematographer for his films and the way that he's crafting the images is is meticulous in the planning as far as the way that he's going to construct the images. You know, in your scope of working with your cinematographer through your different films, I mean, what are you seeing the way that, like, the, the critical elements of, of how Bergman is using camera and and his cinematographer to specifically latch onto a lot of these elements and the themes and everything that he's bringing forward. Well, I think the encounter with with uh, Nick Svitt was probably an extraordinary uh, match, you know, with Bergman's sensibility. Sure, yeah. All about their sensibilities. And you see when he lights a face... Um, like the the shadows, the the work with light and shadow, the way the drama that he plays with light, uh, it's just exquisite. Very few uh, cinematographers were able to. It's almost you know like Munch or uh, Scandinavian painting. Um, so I think they're an incredible match. And uh, Bergman was a very visual director. I think he was the images would pop in his head, and then he would try to grab this with his cinematographer and I'll be very curious to hear what the conversation were of like, you know, where do we put the camera and <laughs> how like the, all, all the shots that they're designed together. I think a lot they've designed together because he was very good at blocking. Apparently he knew he would block with his actors and he would see if the performance wasn't working, usually it was because the blocking was wrong. So he would reblock the scene in a way that the would allow the performance to to emerge and that the actors would feel confident and good and he would but then Lee Woolman said they never contradicted his blocking as actors because they knew if Bergman said he was right, he was right. <laughs> he was very strong in his opinion and his visual because he's it's the ten thousand hours. He had done so many movies that at one point it's like second nature. Like he I don't think he needed to do a hundred takes of like he could feel what was working and not working. Um, and probably it's a language. Like he developed that language with his cinematographers and they knew how to capture like that, that sequence you were talking uh, about, Pete. Uh, I love like the glass moment because no one would shoot it like this today. Like you're from her back and then she looks at the piece of glass on the floor and you pan and then you go back to her. He really stretches and sculpts that moment. 
And today you would have a shot, reverse shot and the piece of glass and her reaction. And, and this is completely choreographed around that piece of glass and her body language around it. So they're able to create sequ sequences where uh, from a very small detail, it becomes a huge stretch of time and they're sculpting the time this way. So they're, you, so you have a sense of atemporality when you watch the movie. There's no more sense of real time. You could be in a dream, you could be in the reality, but they choose almost like a symphony, they, like music. I think they operate very much like composers for music. They choose where time is going to be condensed and where time is going to be stretched. And Tarkovsky called that sculpting time. But I think the master of it is really Bergman more than Tarkovsky because Tarkovsky was like, the pace was very, very slow. And for some people, it's completely off-putting. But Bergman knew how to energize shots by doing those entry in frame, like the one we mentioned of, you know, a Liv Woolman popping into the screen and taking a picture. Like very few directors were having this audacity to just shake you and jolt you. And like, I don't know, he had an, a sense of it. I think he was like, his intuition was very good with composition of images and that's why he's such a talent. He just he knew how to do it somehow, and probably he experienced with things that didn't work. But then it's about the choices. Like he had the intuition to say this works together in the edit room, or this didn't work, and and just he would. There's a uh, there's a shot in Persona that he removed many times and put back. It's when BB uh, Anderson is reading the letter where. Uh, Liv Woolman uh, kind of criticizes her and she feels it's a complete betrayal. And there is a shot at the end of the sequence where she's standing by a lake and that shot was there, wasn't there. And then he, he went back and forth in the edit room and at the end it's in the movie. And the only reason he kept it, it wasn't very useful. It was just the shot of her. It's a beautiful aesthetic shot, but it was because the rhythm of the rain was working and he didn't want to cut the drops, the sound of the drops of the rain. He wanted this to play almost like a symphony. So he needed that shot to complete the experience of that letter. I mean, incredible, right? The amount of detail and understanding of what rhythm and sound can do to a film. Um, so he put it in there. It's still in the movie. Fascinating, fascinating. I, I you just you call out like you call out just the the way he was working with the cinematographer. I was texting Andy as I was watching the movie last night, and I yeah, I think it was just. Have you ever seen such beautiful pores? Like, <laughs> like just the way they light and capture skin. I I just kept thinking. I wonder if Sophie ever sat down and said, "I want you to capture every pore in Giamatti's face." Like that's what I want. <laughs> I want all Giamatti beard pore. That's so <laughs> gross, but Bergman made it work. <laughs> yeah, because they probably have very little makeup and it's shot on film. And today you can't even do that with most actresses. They want, a, they want tons of makeup. You're shooting in digital, so they're more exposed because the digital reads more wrinkles and all this. So they have to do retouch in post-production. So what about being so naked like those actresses? They're not naked. Their body's not naked, but their face is so naked and they're so human. They don't have Botox. They don't have plastic surgery. <laughs> they just, and that's why they're such incredible actresses. They're just using their face as a tool. And okay, they were 25 years old. They were young and beautiful. <laughs> they were beautiful. <laughs> okay. Not, right. Yeah. They're not trying to show their imperfection as human beings. And that's why I think, you know, actresses should be 
actresses, not just to show that they're beautiful, <laughs> but to show the vulnerability, to show, um, you know, and it's very, very close to the face. I was also thinking of the pores and no one lights faces like this anymore. You'd put frontal lighting so it kind of smoothens the skin and you don't see all those details. And that's why I think today is so interesting to watch this movie because it's truthful. It's about the truth. She's not speaking because she wants to reach some sort of truth of the human experience. So Bergman is like, if I'm going to do a movie about truth, I have to be truthful with my actresses and show their, you know, go very close to their skin and show all the imperfection, all the micro expressions. And that's why those close-ups are mesmerizing because you're reading Liv Woolman's micro expression for two minutes on screen and you, you cannot stop watching her. Uh, that's also a testament of what an incredible actress you could. I was saying that about Paul Giamatti, who I also think is an extraordinary actor. That it's the kind of actress that you could watch uh, looking at the yellow pages, which don't exist anymore. But like, it's <laughs> <laughs> really very boring thing because they're so expressive and they're so minimal in their expression. But they're, that's where you see the soul of the actor in action. You know, it's like, it's all, it's the beauty of cinema, it's the magnification of of the face, the close-up, you know, and Bergman brought back the close-up to um, the center of a movie. And then that's all you remember is those faces. Yeah, it's they're, they're stunning the way that they're photographed. And it is such an interesting exploration in character to have, like, to, to be looking at them so close so often throughout the film, never hearing Liv Ullman speaking, uh, some whispers and things like that, but largely not. Otherwise, it's B.B. Anderson constantly talking. And to the nature of the story itself and that idea of like voyeurism and everything, like it, we're sitting here watching all of this and we're studying, you know, she's not saying anything. So we're just looking at every little detail of her and and constantly thinking about what is she thinking about this crazy sex story that B.B. Anderson is relaying as they're laying on the beach and all of these things that she's thinking about and and we're thinking about it and everything. And then we, we hear this letter and we're like, well, that's not all where I thought she was thinking. And it's such an interesting exploration of of what we're getting out of these characters and what what B.B. Anderson as the nurse is getting out of Elizabeth, uh, which is completely different. And she's totally misinterpreted what she's actually, how she's using her in, as she reads this letter. And it's, it's such an interesting exploration in the way we view people, the way we view the world and, and to a certain extent, impart our own thoughts and feelings and opinions onto them. And which may fit in with exactly what they're doing. And sometimes it does, but also it's like, it's a complete uh, 180 to, to where they were, which I think for us also came as a complete shock when she's reading that letter, which was fascinating to me. Well, a a shock because it was like parallel violation. The story she's telling about the, the sexual escapade is one of violation, right? Like depending on your perspective, it's, it starts with sort of being sort of playful, but ultimately it is manipulative. And then she talks about her pregnancy and the grief that goes on with the abortion. And at this, and, and that's, it, it all becomes sort of a psychosexual physical violation. And then we have this complete emotional violation of the betrayal in the letter that parallel is not lost as as I'm watching this movie. And when you're talking about Bergman's ability to write, I, I'll just say characters that that can tell these stories in a way that that is 
they're just they, I believed them. I was with this performance. Uh, it didn't feel uh, manufactured. It didn't feel like over sort of masculinely sexualized. I was thinking about it as I was watching this. I was like, okay, Bergman is a dude watching this. But the arc of that conversation that she has with herself is extraordinarily powerful when it, by the time it gets to bed and the way he uses the camera shooting over her and she cries and whips back over uh, it, it's extraordinary that violation is central to the movie and thinking more about Bergman central to his experience making it it's incredible and I think central as him as an artist because one theory of interpretation of this film is that Elizabeth is the artist, is actually the filmmaker, it could be Bergman. It's like, how much do you manipulate people around you to get what you need for your art? What a monster you could be as an artist. And we know that's actually, it's it's insane because it's actually the relationship he had with Liv Woolman after when they started living together. She was the muse, but he completely vampirized her. They lived in the island. He didn't let her see anyone. After a moment, she had to leave. He was like completely destroying her and feeding on her. And he couldn't live without her. She was everything to him. She was the actress in the film. She was the source of inspiration. She was his wife. She was the mother of, of their daughter. And so maybe this film is also, you know, a portrait of himself. It's like a, a Picasso portrait of all these angles of this crazy filmmaker who he was he knew he was a monster and that's why he was in a crisis uh at that moment of his career he was he called it a crisis of truth that maybe you know he needed to say okay what if i just stop using people and 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 but he can't help doing it because the character is studying this nurse the nurse is there to help her but in the process she's getting vampirized and physically vampirized because you see Livulman sucking on her blood at one point <laughs> so there is like a whole thematic of vampire movie dr jekyll and mr hyde feeding on the other person to to get better yourself because she's getting you feel that elizabeth is getting better and better and that the poor nurse is getting worse and worse and completely losing her mind and being violated and used and manipulated and this is what bergman was also doing to his actresses he was very like picasso was doing that to his muses it's a male he's aware of the male destructiveness in artists that they need that to create masterpieces so it's Meta film is like it's a sort of psychoanalytical film about I think his relationship to his art, and he's super aware of it in a way, uh, and maybe he's hiding behind those female characters to actually talk about himself and his relationship to the people around him because he was very destructive to the point where we have the shot when uh, Elizabeth's husband is there, and and. <laughs> Uh, all Alva is like you know confused, or she's like I'm not I'm not her. But then Elizabeth is, is behind her and like takes her arm as like she's guiding her, like she's directing. She's like, no no like it's like oh my god this is so creepy. What is it like? I'm like that is like such a weirdly meta like stepping out of it. Like I'm going to direct you how to handle this situation. It's like yeah. She's mainly, maybe she's an actress, but she's also director of everything that's happening in that house because. She's directing the emotion like a puppet. This poor nurse is like a puppet until she rebels. And um, and then we don't know at the end. She takes a bus. We don't know if she's going to get better, if she completely lost it. 
We don't know if Elizabeth is ever going to talk again. We don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've watched these 84 minutes to, and that Bergman would say that it's like, I don't want you to know and solve these. It's movies are not like things to solve. They're just things to experience. And then it's, it would stay with you longer if you have no idea what happens to those characters. And if it, if it was an American studio movie, you would have a resolution <laughs> and you, you would, you would have to know what happens to those characters next. But that's the beauty of, you know, Bergman and his trance. He's withdrawing that information so tightly because it is about human beings. It's, you cannot solve a human being. There's always going to be changes and the soul is evolving and it's complex and complicated. And, and especially if it's part of him. Uh, in those characters, how do you solve Bergman? You know, it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> you just right. can observe it. You can live with him. You can go through the same emotions and do a catharsis of your own emotion as a human being, because you can project that similar things happen in your life, in your relationship, but you cannot solve it. It's, there's no answer to it. <laughs> wow. Andy, how'd the movie do at award season? Did it sweep all the uh, international entrails exhibitions? <laughs> uh, yeah, this film, uh, you know, I, I think considering for the time, it probably struck a lot of people as uh, a European art film. It did well for itself. Eight wins with four other nominations at the BAFTAs. B.B. Anderson was nominated for Best Foreign Actress for both this and My Sister, My Love, but ended up losing to Anouk Ami in A Man and a Woman. At the National Society of Film Critics Awards, uh, Anderson won Best Actress. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, but lost to In the Heat of the Night. Interesting loss there. I think yeah. In the Heat of the Night looks good, but I feel like I between these two, I don't know what else was nominated, but I'd absolutely pick this. For sure. Uh, Bergman won Best Director and it won Best Film. It was also nominated for Best Screenplay, but lost to Bonnie and Clyde, interestingly, which, uh, you know, strong film, I can I can understand that. Um, last but not least, at, at the Calle du Cinema, they included it on their top 10 list of 1967 uh, top 10 films. And uh, the budget. And I have to preface this by saying, Andy, do you look forward to a time when we actually start talking about movies where you can find budgetary information again? <laughs> oh, it's been thin lately. Yeah. It has been thin. Uh, this was, certainly was a tough one. I couldn't find anything regarding uh, what Bergman had for a budget for this particular film. What I did find was that it opened in Sweden August 31st, 1966, and here in the States, March 16th, 1967. It looks like it made $250,000 domestically, and what I could find was 90000 internationally. I don't know if that's just Sweden or everywhere. Uh, that gives it, a, based on what I have, a total gross of almost $3.2 in today's dollars. Without any other numbers, though, that is all I have. I mean, it's just an absolutely fascinating film. I'm thrilled that you uh, brought it so that we could have a chance to chat about it because because I hadn't rewatched it, and I'm really glad I have now because I, I just am I now have it in so much more awe, really, as to like what Bergman accomplished with it. It's it's a it's a fantastic and haunting piece that that warrants multiple viewings in fact have you ever had a chance to watch this on the big screen this is something that i was like i would love to see this up on the big screen Yeah, every time there is a retrospective i go see it on the big screen because it's it's like it's those movies that you have to experience you know the the magnificent close-up you know and that size of 
big screen and it's so beautifully shot and yeah it, it's an experience that you have to have on a big screen but it's also very powerful just on a tv screen that's the power of this movie yeah, <laughs> sure yeah. it doesn't actually take much to set this movie yeah. off right yeah still yeah. mesmerized and imagine like how many years ago it's been made and it's still so relevant and and so uh, modern for even we've seen so many movies and it's still something that is very fresh and I'll be curious to see how the new generation, um, I'm sure it still works for, I want to show it to my daughter one day uh, and see how, you know, they're affected by it. And I'm sure it's going to occur more decades and decades of life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, uh, that's, that's what's great about great art is that it always finds a way to, uh, to kind of um, find a way to remain timeless and kind of keep influencing people. And um, that's what makes it an incredibly film to talk about. So, uh, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us with this. Great pick. Thank you so much. Do you have a like a place online where you direct people any anywhere where you uh, like Instagram or anything like that or? You try to shy away. I mean, I feel weird asking you that, having just like watched the pod generation. I'm like, eh, I, <laughs> I'm criticizing it in my film, and then imagine I'm on Instagram. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> What's your Chat GPT handle? <laughs> uh, no, I really like. I really think it's poison. Uh, I just can't go. I'm doing a series right now. I'm gonna. I'm writing a series about artificial intelligence, and the more I research and the more I talk to people that are in that field the more I feel, you know, I mean, we have to laugh about it. Otherwise it's too depressing, but um, I do think it's all these things have been very poisonous to not our generation, not that much, but to the younger generation. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> 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 not a, yeah, prehistorical figure. <laughs> yes, right. No, totally fine. Well, we will certainly include links for your three uh, features uh, in our show notes for this so that people can uh, check them out because they're all worth watching and, and interesting films to, to pull a lot from. So, uh, Sophie, thank you again. Uh, we had a great time. It was a pleasure. For everybody else out there, we hope that you liked the show and certainly hope that you like the movie like we do here on Movies We Like. Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Chomp Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Threads, X, Instagram, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we certainly appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. 
the originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh yeah, I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. (laughs) 